Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray now that you would open your word to the people of God, that your Holy Spirit would guide my words, that my words would be your words. And I pray that you would enlighten our hearts, that we may know the hope to which we're called to live out during uh, 2021. And we'll be sure to give you all the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. First, I want to give credit uh, for this sermon outline to uh, uh, Jim Johannick of uh, Crew Executive Ministries and those men who faithfully get on uh, uh, Zoom every Wednesday morning in the last couple of months as, as we have waded through the complex issue of biblical and social justice. And I want to thank Jim Johannick for uh, giving me this nice outline for this message today. Uh, a covenant remains intact. Well, as we completed another um, Advent season this week, Uh, and look forward to 2021, we have to ask ourselves continually, especially in a world that is increasingly either dismissive or skeptical of the need for Jesus. I mean, what purpose does Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection serve? Like a prism of crystal that reflects light magnificently in a multitude of directions, depending on our perspective, We can look upon Jesus in any number of ways and see a uniqueness about him in each direction. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. What Lewis meant by that quote is that while the nativity story of the birth of Christ is poetic, it's beautiful, it's powerful, it's also true, and it took place in real time, at a certain time, a certain point in human history. And once we come to know Jesus as the actual Lord and Savior of this world, then everything else begins to make more sense. So this morning, we're going to look upon the the person and the deity of Jesus in a particular light as the fulfillment of the covenant that God made to mankind. The promises of God in the Old Testament come in the context not only of His commitment to His people, but also of instruction about the people's commitment and obligations back to God. Noah, Abraham, Moses and others whom God meets and addresses are called on to respond not only with trust in God's promises, but with lives that begin to bear fruit from their fellowship with God. So the relationship with God to His people is summed up in various covenants that, make, that God makes with His people. A covenant between two human beings is a binding commitment obliging them to deal faithfully with one another. And there are a couple of elements that we need to consider when we talk about covenant, which is personal relationship and contract. 
two important elements. What is a personal relationship? To be in a personal relationship with another person means to really know that person. Elder Tony, this is different than your wife, Pat, getting online and ordering a product through Amazon and having that product just nicely packaged in a UPS box and delivering it to Pat, to Miss Pat, at home by somebody she doesn't even know. That's not a personal relationship. There's a real knowing and connection that's involved between two people in a personal relationship that you and I have. Personal relationships can also have both positive and negative experiences, right, Tony? <laughs> Not all of our personal relationships are positive. Now, what is a contract? A contract is an agreement between private parties creating mutual obligations enforceable by law. The basic elements required for the agreement to be a legally enforceable contract are both parties give their mutual assent, there's a valid offer on the table, and both parties accept the offer. There's adequate consideration, there's capacity to meet the terms, and it is legally binding. That is a contract. If you combine the intimacy of a personal relationship with the legal accountability of a contract, here lies the basis upon which a covenant is established. Pastor Tim Keller said a covenant is a deeply personal, intimate relationship made immeasurably more loving, more binding, and accountable because it is a legal contract. It is a stunning blend of law and love. So let's go to our first text in uh, Genesis 15. This is God's covenant with Abram before his name was changed to Abraham. Verse 1. Chapter 15 of Genesis. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Verse 3. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Verse 7. And God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. 
Verse 10, And Abram brought God all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Verse 14, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. That's great for all of us to hear that. You will be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kenmanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. A covenant formally binds two parties together in a relationship on the basis of mutual personal commitment with consequences for keeping or breaking the commitment. God makes this kind of covenant with a group of people by covenanting with one, Abram, representing them. Everyone else then, you, me, Tony, everyone else then experiences the covenant by virtue of being included in that representative. The covenant that God makes with Abram here in chapter 15 is connected back to God's earlier promises in chapter 12 to give Abram a posterity, a land, and a blessing. Verses 1 to 6 address Abram's concern that he is still childless. I mean, never mind the stars. He just said, Lord, I'm just asking for one son. I'm not talking about a thousand stars. So forget the stars. I just want one son. Okay? He was concerned that he's still childless. And in verses 7 to 21, focused on his desire to have a divine pledge that the land of Canaan will belong to his descendants. Both these elements are essential components of nationhood, and the fulfillment will not take place until several centuries until after Abram's death, Abraham's death. Well, the after these things in verse 1 of chapter 15, when you see the words after these things, you have to ask yourself, well, after what things? Verse 1 connects the events in this chapter to the previous chapter, chapter 14, in which Abram successfully rescues his nephew Lot from a group of invaders, and he recovers a large quantity of plunder. Abraham rejected the offer from the king of Sodom for the victory spoils as a reward because he, he rejected the use of, of earthly power. 
to achieve God's purposes. He will have none of that. Some of, you know, some of our politicians can learn that today. In response, God now states that Abram's reward will be very great because he was willing to wait for God to provide. In verse 5, God brings Abram out of his tent to look at the number of stars as a sign that he will have many descendants. Verse 6 is a key verse that is quoted four times, four times in the New Testament. Verse 6 again says, And he believed the Lord, and God counted it to Abraham as righteousness. Quoted four times, Romans 4, 3, and 22, Galatians 3, 6, and James 2, 23. Faith in God is something that everyone in the Bible was expected to exercise. No exceptions. Faith. It entails trust and confident reliance on God based on the truthfulness of His words, and it will lead to obeying His commands. A person's faith or lack of it is most apparent in crises, such as Abraham, the one that Abraham was facing. He believed God would give him a son despite many years of childlessness. He had faith looking forward to a future Savior, and the Scripture says it was counted to him as righteousness. Righteousness is the fundamental Old Testament virtue that's characterized by a godly life lived in conformity with God's law. It is the righteous who enjoys favor. Verses 9 to 17 describes the ritual which signifies God's covenant with Abram. God told him to cut up in half a heifer, three years old, female goat, three years old, ram, three years old. Then after a sunset, after the sunset, and it was dark, well, God made the biggest bonfire of any Boy Scout camp. He sent a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch to pass between the animal carcasses. There's an element of self-curse in this type of oath. When this type of oath is not fulfilled, there's an element of self-curse. God will become like the dead animals if he does not keep his word to Abram. Now, let's read about another covenant from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 29, verses 10 to 15, and verse 18. Deuteronomy 29, 10 to 15. You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord, your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, basically from the greatest to the least, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today. Verse 13, that he may establish you today as his people, 
that he may be your God as he has promised you and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Verse 14, it is not with you alone that I'm making this sworn covenant, but with whoever, whoever. You know what the Greek word for whoever is? It's whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God. And whoever is not here with us today. So whoever's standing here today, whoever's not with us today, they're included. Beware, verse 18, very important. Verse 18, beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord your God to go and serve the gods of those nations. This is the word of the Lord. This covenant that God makes with Moses and the people of Israel in the land of Moab is a reiteration of the earlier covenant he makes with them at Mount Sinai. And the laws are exactly the same. They don't change. This Moab covenant constitutes all the spoken words of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. I mean, we've been to Israel. We've stood out there in the hot sun, the hot, dry desert. You can, you can just imagine them standing out there in this heat and listening to this. Well, the first question we ask in verse 13, what does God offer the people? What does he offer them who agreed to stand before the Lord? And you just know, notice all the personal pronouns, all the you's and all of the I's in this passage. But verse 13 says that he may establish you today as his people, that he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the offer. You get to be my people, my treasured possession of all the peoples, of all the nations. You get to be my treasured possession. There's the offer. When God makes a covenant with man, God is the sovereign one. So he's the one who specifies the obligations on both sides of the coin. Verse 12 conveys the formal nature of God and Israel entering into the sworn covenant and accepting the consequences. I will be their God is the fundamental obligation that God has on his side, while they shall be my people is the fundamental obligation on the human side. Both are mentioned in verse 13. Well, who was offered this covenant? I mean, does this include you? What are the terms of this covenant? How have we broken this covenant on our side of the coin? What gods are we prone to worship today? Whoever is not here with us today refers to future generations. Whoever is with us here, standing here with us today, and whoever is not with us today. That's who's included in this uh, in these terms, refers to future generations, including us, who are believers in Christ. The covenant with God is not simply for one generation. It's not a one and done. It is 
a repeat, just as the earlier Mount Sinai covenant also applied to the current generation. It will, it will project onto the future, to future generations. In verse 18, God reminds the Israelites of the vulnerability of their hearts to go astray, to idolatry. The heart is the organ of our understanding and will in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy focuses on the heart as the center of morality. Because when one Israelite goes astray, their sin is regarded as COVID-19. Their sin is regarded as a contagious virus that infects other Israelites. Hence, in verse 18, God warns them to beware of the root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Well, the Greek translation of that phrase is used in Hebrews 12, 15, in which the writer warns us, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. It's the exact same principle in Deuteronomy that's quoted in Hebrews 12, 15. Unfortunately for us, We've all broken God's covenant by following after man-made idols and putting ourselves at the center of the universe. I mean, this is where we naturally want to live, at the center. And this natural disposition fits in exactly with the culture that surrounds us, okay? This was the very crux of the fall. When Satan said to Eve, you shall not surely die, but you shall be like God. She and Adam wanted to be like God. They did not want to say no to the fruit that was good to the eyes, even though God had told them to say no, and he warned them of the consequences. And all the rest of our mess flowed from this. Adam and Eve put themselves at the center of the universe. They wanted to be like God, and we have the same inclinations today with us as they did. We're tempted all the time, whether it's chasing worldly success or hoarding up stuff that we don't need. We're not very good at saying no to idols, entertainment, sports, name it. Which brings us to the person of Jesus Christ and what he did for us in the forgiveness of sins for our turning away from the Lord. How does God's giving of himself through Jesus pay for the breaking of our end of the covenant? Well, God's commitment takes the forms of promises, blessings, and curses. The promises and blessings point forward to Christ, who is the fulfillment of the promises and the source of final blessings. The curses, the curses point forward to Christ, both in his bearing the curse and in his execution of judgment and curse against sin, especially at his second coming. This is an aside note, but... You go back and you read Deuteronomy 28 and 29. You tell me, you tell me if our nation and our world are not experiencing 
every single one of those curses right now, listed in Deuteronomy 28 and 29. That's just a side note. So the curses point forward to Christ in his bearing the curse and execution of judgment and curse against sin. The obligations on our human side of the covenants are also related to Christ. Christ is fully man as well as fully God. As a man, he stands with his people on the human side. He fulfilled the obligations of God's covenants through his perfect obedience, Hebrews 5, 8. And he received the reward of obedience and his resurrection and ascension, Philippians 2, 9 to 10. The Old Testament covenants on their human side points forward to, this, to Christ's achievement on the cross. By dealing with the wrath of God against sin, Christ changed a situation of alienation from God to a situation of peace. He reconciled believers, blacks, whites, Hispanics, Asians, rich, poor. He reconciled believers to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 18-21, Romans 5, 6-11. He brought personal intimacy with God and the privilege of being children of God, Romans 8, 14-17. This intimacy is what all the Old Testament covenants anticipate, look forward to. In Isaiah, God even declares that His servant, the Messiah, will be the covenant for the people. Isaiah 42, 6 and Isaiah 49, 8. Now, do modern human relationships reflect this, this godly covenant relationship in which one party, the one party holds the other covenant promise despite a breach of the covenant from the other party? How does what God demonstrate in Jesus' payment for our breach of the covenant so it runs countercultural to our culture? I, with our culture, it's tit for tat, right? You get one of mine, I'm going to get one of yours. Paul answered this, these questions in Romans 5, 6 to 9. Verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Perhaps for a good person, maybe. Verse 8, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, since therefore we now have been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be, be saved by Him from the wrath of God? In these verses, Paul grounds the subjective experience of God's love at the objective work of Christ on the cross. In verse 6, he said that Christ died for us when we lacked moral strength and lived ungodly lives. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. On rare occasions, even a human being would die for a righteous person or for a good person who has done much good. God's love, however, is countercultural because Christ did not die for righteous people or those who've done good for others. He died for sinners. I came to save sinners, he said. For ungodly, unrighteous people, like us, living 
in total willful rebellion against God. It is not just Christ's love that was shown in his death, but also the love of God the Father. While God's righteousness and justice led to his plan of salvation through the death of Christ, it was his love that motivated this plan. When we reflect on the miracle of the incarnation, as we did in December, God humbled himself to take on the fullness of our humanity, not as a powerful king, but as a helpless baby, to grow up and live a perfect life, the only person to live a perfect life, and then to give himself up voluntarily, willingly, as the payment for our breach of the covenant, he established between himself and those made in his image. So in Genesis 15, when God made a covenant with Abraham, God asked Abraham to slay three animals and separate them in halves. God started that big bonfire, walked in between the halves of the animals. That was the tradition when two people made a covenant with each other. The symbolism of walking between the pieces was to say this. May it be done to me, may it be done to me as it was done to this animal if I break this covenant. That's what that oath meant. Well, we are the ones who deserve to be broken because we, not God, breached our end of the covenant. But let us reflect today on the fact that it was God through himself as Jesus, who was broken on our behalf so that the covenant with us, God's covenant with us through the lineage of Abraham remains intact. The covenant with Abraham has an unbreakable tie to Christ. Christ is the descendant of David and Abraham, as the genealogy of Matthew 1 indicates. Christ is the offspring of Abraham, and through him believers are united to him and thereby themselves become Abraham's offspring. Believers, blacks, whites, Asians, Hispanics, American Indians, name it. Jews and Gentiles alike become heirs to the promises of God made to Abraham and his offspring. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ, Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3, 28. So, for my bookmark, for my bookmark, I quote from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. Who else, right? 2020, this year, marks the 70th year since the publication of that book. That's the first book in the Chronicles of Narnia. I, uh, to, to prepare for this sermon, I watched the movie again last night. I did not read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe until, until uh, you know, I was 45. I didn't read it as a kid. I, I didn't even know it as a kid or a teenager. Uh, I, I read it um, in my 40s when my daughter Grace was in elementary school, and I can remember reading it to her night after night for about a year straight 
after we'd seen the Disney movie come out. Unfortunately, unfortunately for her, reading the book repeatedly and watching the movie did not impact her one iota. I mean, my kid was never interested in fairy tales. She was never interested in, in nighttime reading. <laughs> Nor did it leave an imprint on her imagination as much as it did on my own adult imagination. Narnia persists in our adult imaginations more so than even children because Lewis knew something about us that we sometimes forget. C.S. Lewis engaged our conscience in a way that would steal past those watchful dragons, the watchful dragon of a guilty conscience, he calls it, and created in us a longing for a better future, a sense of autumn, a sense of summer, and a sense of northernness, as he puts it. Embedded in all the consciences and hearts of our neighbors, even unbelievers, is a sense of justice, a sense of a longing for a world in which there's real justice. Even the most secular people, the most non-believing people, can recognize that a cover-up of evils that we currently have, such as sexual sins in the church and church ministries, and nobody is exempt. Yesterday, Elder Tony, I just learned that another high pro, very high-profile uh, ministry confirmed that sexual allegations uh, were true based on an internal investigation that they did on their own. So that's a cover-up that's ongoing. And like I said, no ministry, no church is exempt. We're all tempted. Doesn't matter our title or position or gender. It doesn't matter. And then there's the cover-up of police misconduct, the latest. The latest police misconduct experienced by clinical social worker Anjanette Young. These evils demand justice. Dr. Russell Moore of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission said that these types of cover-ups demand an even greater justice than what we can muster up in our own context and in our own current laws. Our laws are imperfect because they're man-made. We can get close to it. We can get close to it, but we won't get to the perfect until we get to the other side. Which brings us back to C.S. Lewis and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And it's, it's eternal message. Lewis describes this world that we're living in here. We need to realize that we live in enemy-occupied territory. This is not friendly land. This is enemy-occupied territory. We are in the middle of a spiritual warfare. Lewis speaks to the sense that we all must have, that something has gone terribly awry in Narnia. 
something is wrong when it is iced over and winter all the time with no Christmas. Something is wrong. It's under the white witch's spell. Yes, it's the world is under a satanic spell. There's a sense in which we see the wreckage of Eden all around us. We see the wreckage. We see injustice and pain all around us with more than 300,000 deaths from COVID and rising every day. So how will this all be put back together? How will this all be made right? And it gives us the opportunity to return to the stone table. The stone table. The witch and all manner of evil creatures bind the innocent lion Aslan to the stone table. They shave him and they muzzle him. I encourage you, this afternoon, after the Bears game, watch this movie. Finally, the witch takes a stone knife and kills the innocent lion, Aslan. As the sun rises... The two girls hear a loud crack, and they see the stone table broken in two, but there is no Aslan. That's because he is risen. Well, as Aslan would later explain to the two girls, he said, though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little farther back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read, there is a different incantation. There's a different spell. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Death and its effects would start working backwards in reverse order. That's how we get the resurrection. Well, just as Aslan was killed in Edmund's stead, that young boy's behalf, and saved his life, so Jesus' death for us, Jesus' death for us on the cross, not only takes away our guilt for what we have done or what we have left undone. But when we believe in Christ, when we put our total trust and faith in Him, new life begins to transform us from the inside out, from death unto life that will go on for all eternity. Because Jesus Christ is the sacrificial, sin-bearing offering that ultimately defeats the injustice all around us, and defeats the injustice that is within us. And that is the covenant that remains intact. Please pray with me. Lord, help our infirmities. When we're pressed down, Lord, with with a load of sorrow when we're perplexed and not knowing what to do, when we're slandered and persecuted, 
made to feel the weight of the cross. Lord, help us. I pray that you would help us to remember the price that Christ paid for us on the cross. If you see in us any wrong thing, encouraged, any evil desires, Lord, that's cherished, any delight that is not your delight, any habit that grieves your heart, Father God, any nest of sin in our hearts, then grant us, grant us the kiss of your forgiveness. Teach our feet to walk the way of your commandments as you warn your children in Deuteronomy 29. Deliver us, Lord, from earthly cares and make us holy people. Help us to walk the separated life with firm and brave steps to wrestle successfully against our moral weaknesses, Lord. Teach us to adore you and magnify your name with the music that's sounding out in heaven right now from the angels. Make us a fragrant offering of praise and gratitude to you, Lord. Lord, we don't crouch at your feet like a, a slave before a tyrant. Lord, we are children of a good, good father. So give us power today to live as your children in all of our words and actions, to exercise sonship and daughtership by conquering self. Lord, preserve us from the intoxication that comes from wealth and prosperity, Lord. Sober us when we are glad with joy that comes not from you. Lead us safely onto your eternal kingdom, not asking whether the road be rough or smooth, Lord. We request only to see your face, as the, as the psalmist said, your face and to be content with your bread to eat, with your clothing to put on, Lord. So bring us, bring us to your eternal dwelling in peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.